0: This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management. Experienced wealth managers who go above and beyond to guide and support you. CanDo is more than just an attitude. It's navigating today for a brighter tomorrow. Visit CanDoWealth.com Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator. Each week, we look at three pieces from the magazine, with the writers behind them. I'm William Moore, Spectator's Features Editor. On this week's episode, I'll be learning about Labour's new centrist army, discussing the cost of speaking up in Putin's Russia, and debating the rifts in Satanism. First up, in her cover piece for the magazine, the Spectator's political editor, Katie Balls, writes that as Labour prepares for government... Keir Starmer is rooting out the far-left sections of his party and replacing them with moderates. She joins me now, along with John McTiernan, former political secretary to Tony Blair. Katie, could you start by telling our listeners a little about who these STAM troopers are and what is their selection process?
1: Yeah, so I think it's fair to say this is probably the strictest candidate selection has been really in recent history for the Labour Party. And there's a quote I mentioned in the piece, uh, which is something Tony Blair said back in 1996, which was, you really don't have to worry about Jeremy Corbyn suddenly taking over. (laughs) I know everything that's going on in his constituency party. Now, of course, some would look back at the comment and think to what happened in 2015. And I think it gives you a bit of insight into why. Team Starmer have decided to take quite a Controlling approach to candidate selection this time around. I think there are a few factors behind it. Of course, Jeremy Corbyn has been blocked from standing. Diana Abbott could be next. She's currently uh, suspended over a letter to the Observer. But also, if you look at candidate quality in the past couple of elections, and this also applies to the Tory party, it's been pretty poor. And that is sometimes just an outcome of having snap elections because you have less time to prepare. So 2017, 2019. But you also have had, you know, you think. Jared O'Mara, who is the Labour MP for Sheffield Hallam. He was very much the momentum candidate so the pro-Corbyn group obviously recently found guilty of fraud. Uh, you had Claudia Webb also seen as a, a Corbynite friendly uh, MP and she has also been in court. So there's there's plenty of examples and in the piece I mentioned you know one um, Labour staffer who recalled to me how on 2017 election night when the Labour Party did better than many expected. Of course, did not win, but lots of people thought Tories get a huge majority. They started printing some of the CVs of these MPs who, to the surprise of most people, have managed to win and quickly the optimism turned to um, despair. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so this time around, there's much more vetting and that's partly uh, because Keir Starmer cannot afford to have lots of candidates who are in anti-Semitism stories, offensive comments, and it's also partly because he wants to have, uh, we can call it the Starmer army, the model army, Ooh. as the magazine says, but he wants to have MPs that if the party does get into power you don't know how big that majority is going to be and um, it's people he can work with quite quickly so all candidates are told all, all, all prospective candidates are told to put their social media accounts that they've had on this form and then they, they go through them all to try and find if there's any anything there and I think that is non-controversial where there is some controversy is you have complaints from activists that tend to be to the left of Labour but is, is not always the case saying that they think that it's almost a murky process by which they think it is being used as a way to block certain factions um, from getting onto the candidate list.
0: Uh, John what do you make of that argument that the, the process there's some complaints uh, particularly from the left of the party that that the team Starmer's process here is somewhat Murky. Do you think that there's some truth to that? Or do you think that this is actually a very shrewd move by Keir Starmer to make Labour more electable?
2: The problem with um, elections when you win big, uh, as the Tories did in 2019, as Labour did in 1997, is you've got a lot of what we call lottery winners uh, turn up to be MPs. You look at them and you see they were a paper candidate. They were chosen by a small number of members. Suddenly they're an MP. And... You can't retrofit once you've got this big swing, the swing is in. So in that sense, you've all, you, sh- you all have to be a bit more prepared. Secondly, I think everybody has much more of a, of a trail around them now. The digital age, the social media age, means that people know almost everything I've said uh, since I went on Twitter. Uh, if I'd stood in 1997, where could one have found They'd have had to do a lot of opposition research to find anything damaging in my past? Uh, and of course, they'd have found nothing about me. But it's like <laughs> never, the never. The, uh, the the and, and, and I suppose the, th- the third thing is Labour have got a particular problem. Uh, and I think it's two 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 parts of it. Katie's right. One of those elements is you have to distance yourself from the party under Corbyn, which was branded as being institutionally anti-Semitic. So we absolutely have to be distanced from that. And anybody uh, with anything in their record questioning the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism or any of those issues, they're they're just automatically excluded. But you also have the reality, which is the Labour Party is one of its smallest parliamentary parties ever. uh, Fewer than than 200 uh, MPs currently in the PLP. Within that, a bunch of people are standing down. So you've probably got 150 MPs at the moment who are going to stand next election, get re-elected. If we get 300 MPs, um, we'll be a minority government. 150, half of those MPs will be new MPs. And if we win a majority, you could have 200 new MPs. And so the issue, there's never been a moment, actually, in Labour's history, since uh, probably since... um, uh, since the forty-five election, when so many of the MPs were new to Parliament as well as new to the Labour Party, in that sense, the, the task is really, really important. Now, is it factional? It is. Ru- it, it is definitely being run uh, through the organisation or side of the of the business. And our organisation has always been factional. Its faction has been the party leader. If you look at some of the names of the MPs, Katie talked about. Corbyn did use his power as the party leader to parachute individuals into seats. But there were people like Claudia Webb. They were deeply damaged people. He didn't actually handpick great people. Tony got a different calibre of people parachuted in. This time round, it's interesting, Keir isn't a parachuting. Keir, Keir's team are looking for a solid shortlists of, of at least four people, all of whom would be a decent MP, and they're not picking favoured sons or favoured daughters. I think that marks this out as quite a different a, a different situation. It's a bigger it's a it's a bigger pool, therefore they're creating, and so it's a bigger operation. That's why they started early. If you're looking for four or five decent candidates in each constituency, then you will be uh, having to look at people for longer. And th- they're also investing a lot of time in training them. There's lots of training events when they pull people together. So look, I think it's a new thing. It's not. Factional, it's contextual, and it's because the parties always run for the leader, and it even was run for the leader when Corbyn was leader.
0: Looking at this pool of candidates, Katie, for people who pay close attention to uh, Labour politics, there will be a few familiar names. Would it be unfair to characterise what's going on as a Blairite or Brownite <laughs> restoration project?
1: I, well, <laughs> would it be unfair? I think it's definitely much more Blairite-Brownite restoration than it is a Corbyn one. I think there's only yeah. one <laughs> Corbyn-sympathetic right. candidate in, in the whole output. I, th- I think looking at the candidate list, when I was writing this piece, they roughly fall into two categories. So I do think you have the Blairite-Brownite, you think Douglas Alexander trying to make a comeback, East Lovian, my home seat, <laughs> um, is uh, you know key Scottish target seat, and he has one selection there. You also have former advisors to Alistair Darling, uh, you have former advisors to, to Gordon Brown um, who have been selected for seats and then you have what you, I suppose you could call the Labour princelings um, Charlie Falkland's son Hamish uh, is being talked about already as a future foreign secretary by some I'm not sure how much they're endear <laughs> him to his potential parliamentary colleagues um and and so there so I think there's definitely an element of that um you know people who used to work at the Tony Blair Institute some there's one figure who's been selected as a candidate that institute for example uh, is on high alert if Labour does get into government that many could go there to try and become spads um so so there is that sense and I, I did put to someone quite close to here Starmer you know is this a Brown Blair restoration? You'll be shocked to know they tried to dispute that. They said, it doesn't matter if you love Tony Blair either way. <laughs> <laughs> um, but clearly it's not a negative. But it doesn't hinder you. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly, yeah, exactly, John. It's not a negative. It will not hurt your cause. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then I think the other uh, element is you have a situation whereby there are quite a few candidates who have not been picked because they're long-term supporters of the Labour Party who've spent decades putting leaflets out, but because of their career history, their life experience. So I mentioned, for example, Mike Tapp, who uh, a former soldier and GB News contributor. Um, He's going for Dover and Deal, and that is someone who I think... Um, they think will be a good person to have partly because of their life experience and then you also have former prison officers and so forth so so I think there's um but I say in the piece uh you know what is the strategy and quite a senior figure in the leader's office said you know uh, said to colleagues quite early on it's just to have no piss poor candidates so so I think there is sorry that has offended anyone's ears but uh, so therefore I think there is there's some in terms of the Blairites and Brownites now feel they can return to the Labour Party, but it's also trying to find candidates who have interesting careers, who they think are going to bring something to the table and are probably going to be quite professional, as opposed to when i have speaking to people who are a bit upset about the way the candidate selection is, is working, it tends to people who, you know, often councillors, people who worked a long time within their local parties, who feel that's not being noticed or at least seen as a, the most important quality.
0: And John, for those who are upset about the process, mm-hmm. do you think the far left will will go quietly uh, or is there a general acceptance that the Labour far left project just failed with Jeremy Corbyn, it is time for something new and so there's not going to be too much resistance in terms of actual action against what Team Starmer are, are, are getting up to?
2: I think a really important factor for any political party in winning a general election is the party deciding it wants to win. You can never force a party to want to win. But if the party decides it doesn't want to win, you really don't have a chance, and the party will fall apart. And what's happening is there's a gradual drift away of, uh, of, of, of left party members. Um, just today on Twitter, Emma Dent Code was saying that she was leaving the Labour Party, former Kensington MP, for the two years, and then she, um, she didn't win the, the selection this time around. That went to... Uh, I think an, uh, an alumnus of the uh, Tony Blair Institute or certainly an, uh, somebody associated with one of Blair's international organisations and I think that gradual dr- drifting away, there are there are constituencies where there are hard fought uh, selections that was in mind Campbell and Peckham is a, a plum London seat, Harriet Harman's seat, she's standing out next election the the left really really wants a candidate who actually uh, wasn't on the on. on on the shortlist in the end, but the party membership is far broader than the far left who still control the party executive. And it's the party memberships at large who are choosing, you know, so in Campbell and Peckham, 3,500 people within then party membership. So it's the silent majority in the Labour Party who are finally casting their votes. And if they revolted against the shortlist they were given, you'd be hearing about it, but everybody has decided that they want to win this next election, that 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 strength that strength of party unity is going to mean that if there were protests, they'd be small and muted, but they wouldn't be effective either. And the thing about Keir Starmer, which I think, sometimes sort a of frustration to those of us who, who write about politics, is he doesn't actually give a running uh, narrative on what he's doing. He doesn't give a running commentary. He doesn't actually, you know, running up to, uh, to from nineteen ninety four to nineteen ninety seven there were lots of journalists who were being briefed on what Tony was doing, what the project was, what New Labour was about, what the processology of it was. There's very little briefing goes on from from the Starmer project. What you have to do is watch what he's doing. And you see what he's doing. He's being ruthless in creating a new party in his own image. And you look at the other side and you see, well, what's the party membership doing? They're silent. They are the dog that's not barking. The party is actually happy it's decided it wants to win. It doesn't mean you're guaranteed to win, but if you if you don't decide you want to win, then you're really in trouble. So I, I think the professionalism is something that mirrors both Keir's leadership and the desires of the party members and the affiliated unions, because Unite aren't making any fuss either. You know, Sharon Unite has decided there's an industrial agenda for Unite to push, not a political agenda. And the unions with a political agenda, like uh, you know, Gary Smith at the GMB, there's a strong alignment with where Rachel wants to go on industrial policy, where, where Keir wants to go on onshoring shoring uh, reshoring, friendshoring, all of those. So I think and on energy policy. So I think there's a, there's a quiet calm about the Labour Party, which is there's less for people to write about in terms of splits, the TBGBs, whatever – uh, and th- this is actually a great piece that Katie's written, which, which surfaces some of what's going on in the background that that's not being talked about or written about. And th- th- that's why it's very valuable for, for people to read it and think about what's going on and see how the Labour Party's changed.
0: Finally, Katie, let's talk, we may briefly, about the Tories and their own selection process. Obviously, a lot of Tory MPs have said they're not going to stand in the next election, particularly perhaps those. Who are in seats that perhaps do not look so winnable as they once did? Is there also a a push within the Tory Party to to vet their candidates a little more closely? Uh, Michael Gove has spoken before about making a, a triumph for the fact that the government is boring for now. You know, after the drama of the last few years, is that a, is that something we're going to see in the the the, the Tory selection process as well? A kind of uh, safe, boring, moderate competent type of candidate.
1: Yeah, I mean it's just fantastic if you're the political editor, isn't it, with these two parties very keen to be as dull as possible. <laughs> the race <laughs> the race to the bottom. Great Dime. timing. <laughs> so so I so I'd say just very quickly on the Tory MP point about what I think is quite interesting is quite a few Tory MPs not seeking re-election but also quite a few saying they don't want to seek re-election in their current seat <laughs> and trying to use the Boundary Commission review and the fact that boundaries are changing as a way to do a subtle chicken run um, and and that is creating some unrest in the Tory party if if you have a situation whereby um, MPs are able to say I don't want to be in the current seat because it's not looking good can you put me in a safer seat because Of course, if a few people are allowed to do that, then everyone wants to do it. And it also doesn't scream confidence. Um, I think that in terms of selection, yes, I... It was interesting. This week I was walking into Parliament from the Tube in Westminster and I bumped into um, a figure in the Tory party. And they said, you know, what are you writing on this week? And I said, Labour candidate selection. And they said, well, they're right to be controlling because look at some of the people we got in 2019. <laughs> <laughs> so I think there's definitely a view, um, partly because of the snap election process and what John was talking about, that, you know, if if you win big, There are plenty, particularly I think some of the red wall MPs, who they did not expect to get those seats, and as part of the reason that majority of eighty, and I know we say a lot, particularly on coffeehouse shots, it's not as big as it first seemed because they are harder to control. So, so I think, I think though the Tories have always been much more controlling in their candidate selection than Labour have. Um, There's definitely an element that now. They're a bit behind Labour in terms of picking the candidates, but they are looking, you know, there is a vetting process. There's three categories, um, it, which you get. There's what I think I called in one piece the VIP pass, <laughs> and that's basically you can put your name forward to try and get on the list, you know, for any. And then there's, um, there's Zone 2, which I think is, like, well, it's a bit more marginal, and then there's free, which is development. Um, if you get put in development... training wheels. Yeah, that effectively suggests um, you, you are only going for no-hoper seats, and perhaps they think you are a no-hoper. <laughs> well, Katie
0: and John, thank you very much indeed for joining me. Thank you. Next. In the magazine, The Spectator's Russia correspondent, Owen Matthews, writes about Putin's three most prominent political prisoners and the cost of speaking up against the regime. Owen joins me now with the Spectator's assistant online editor, Lisa Hazeldein. Owen, of course, there has always been a price for speaking out in opposition to Putin's Russia, but I wondered if you could tell our listeners about how much worse it has become in recent months for those who do dare to speak out.
3: Well, since the beginning of uh, of, uh, of the the war, there's been an extraordinary spiraling, in fact, almost sort of hysterically so, in the penalties that have been levied by the Russian state against their opponents. So for a long time, before the start of the war, um, for the basically two decades of Putin's power, up to um, February 24th Twenty twenty two, there was a space for opposition. There was a limited space. The opposition were harassed. They were arrested, but you know they were not thrown in jail for treason for twenty five years. There was a certain sort of limited available space for opposition, for independent media as well. All of that came sort of to a juddering halt at the invasion. And what we've seen over the last year and particularly and most horrifically over the last month uh, with the jailing of Vladimir Karamurza for a spectacular 25 years for treason and also with the, the, the jailing of Ilya Yashin and the continued horrific abuse or uh, petty abuse of um, Alexei Navalny in jail is that clearly the gloves are off and there's no scope whatever for defiance of Putin. Now we're sort of gone all the way back to sort of full Stalinist-style repression in its severity, if not in its scale. Mm.
0: On that point then, I I suppose, um, uh, speaking particularly here of of Vladimir Karamoza's uh, imprisonment and his, his wife spoke at an event earlier this month in which she said the conviction of her husband demonstrates the effectiveness of Putin's work. Will his conviction for 25 years... Do you think that will quash some of the dissent against Putin? Does the Kremlin's brutal tactic, does it work?
3: Well, unfortunately, the best way to answer that question is to look at whether the protest has risen or fallen um, over the course of the year. And the, the sad fact is that actually there were a few... Rather small demonstrations, small because it requires enormous bravery to go out onto the streets and risk arrest and being beaten up. Um, Right at the beginning of the war, I was actually attended one of them in Pushkin Square uh, as soon as the war broke out. And since then, there's been extremely little public protest. And uh, on the contrary, you've seen up to a million mostly young. Uh, middle class urban professionals flee the country. Not all of those are political activists, but many of them are and the arrests of those political activists that have that chose not to leave Russia have i think been quite tragically effective in silencing the rest unfortunately
0: Lisa, you wrote a piece for the magazine towards the end of last year about some of the less high profile dissenters in Putin's Russia, particularly a group of 70 Russian councillors in St. Petersburg who signed a petition calling Putin to be charged. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that. Um, What has happened to these dissenters? Do all dissenters in Putin's Russia end up with a a similar sort of grisly fate?
4: Yes. So speaking specifically about the group of councillors who signed that petition back in the early autumn, over the ensuing weeks, quite a few of them did actually end up leaving the country, particularly because a group of the ringleaders, if you like, who are based in one of the uh, local districts of St Petersburg, had already received police summons and were clearly already sort of on the authorities' radar, if you like. So for them, a lot of them have since made the decision to flee the country. But that's not to say that they have been silenced in that respect. They have continued to you know, use their social media to to sort of spread awareness of what they see as going on Um, and actually funnily enough they did in February receive a very Kafkaesque response to this petition that they sent to the state Duma in the autumn um, which essentially said thanks very much for your letter we won't be investigating President Putin for treason but because of the fact that you have sent this letter essentially we will now be investigating you so I think for a lot of them it was definitely the right call for them to leave the country. Does that mean that they're silenced? No, I don't think so. But it does, of course, change what they can do or, you know, the scope of what they can do.
0: Owen, oh, in, in your in your piece, you call Navalny and Karamoza and others, you call them martyrs, in the sense that they deliberately choose not to save themselves from what they must know could well be a, a very terrible fate. This almost, I suppose, raises a, a, a kind of both a moral and a practical question uh, in your piece, which is what is the best way to protest against Putin's regime? Is it, is it better to kind of make a march of yourself as a symbol or to leave the country, as, as Lisa said, many, many dissenters are doing, and try to oppose from abroad? I, I wonder what your opinion on, on that choice is in terms of what's most effective?
3: I don't really have a uh, state and opinion, and I'm not sure I have one because it's such a difficult moral question, but I do, uh, the point of the piece is to is to lay out that moral question and its complexities because for most of Navalny's supporters, and in fact for most of the members of the opposition that one speaks to who are passionate of Navalny supporters both inside and outside Russia, it is important for them that he is with his people in his country and and suffering that fate that the Kremlin has meted out to him on his own hide. There is a sort of almost religious quality to that self-sacrifice. But it's also important to remember that it is self-sacrifice in the sense that, unlike you know, the great, many of the important political prisoners of the 20th century, like Nelson Mandela or Vaclav Havel, both of whom went on to be leaders of their country, Uh, neither Havel nor Mandela had any choice. They were arrested and jailed by the regimes, um, by their respective regimes. They didn't choose to be arrested. They didn't go willingly to suffer that fate. And Vladimir Karamurza uh, is is an interesting example because both he and Ilya Yashin another prominent uh, opposition supporter, were warned, basically, uh, many times. Um, People around Yashin were arrested and and imprisoned. Karamurzai was himself poisoned twice. Navalny, of course, was nearly fatally poisoned in 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 August of 2020. So the regime themselves want these people out. They want them, they prefer them to have them out. But since if they refuse to, Leave, or in Navalny's case, leave for medical treatment and then voluntarily return, then the regime is only too happy to to, to jail them and make an example of them. And the key moral question here is: what really is, you know, would they maintain moral authority if they fled into exile? Would they, be, would they be considered cowards and would they lose their standing as opposition leaders? And the counter example that I give is Svetlana tikhanovskaya who's the um, failed opposition candidate in the Belarusian elections of 2021, uh, who fled Belarus and is now leading a very active campaign from her exile in Vilnius against the Belarusian government of alexander lukashenko and she travels around europe she m- meets with the european parliament she meets with european leaders she's a very high profile opposition leader and in fact the lithuanians treat her as a government in exile so uh, th- there isn't a, a, a direct example of someone who chose not to sacrifice themselves chose not to become a martyr to the opposition cause by sitting in jail but actually to flee and of course tikhanovska's husband you know, no one can deny Tikhanovska's courage because or her sacrifice, frankly, because her husband remains in jail. But in Navalny's case, also, his brother was jailed, essentially, as a way of, of, of intimidating him. He himself was poisoned. I, I, mean, the, the, I, I personally don't think that people would would have thought particularly less of Navalny had he remained in exile and continued to campaign from exile. But uh, that's not the that's not the view of most of his supporters. for for for, their, for them he's he's this sort of almost Christ like figure suffering all the sort of sins of suffering for the sins of Russia, and through his suffering he'll redeem himself.
0: Lisa, I, I want to ask you then the the question that Owen sort of poses in his piece. Do you think that these martyrs submitting themselves to be kind of endless political prisoners does that show the Kremlin to be weak? Because there are these people who are defying Putin and his accusations or does it show the Kremlin to be powerful because they they are able to clamp down with such strength?
4: Yeah, I think having these dissenters, these opposition figures, sacrifice themselves and give themselves over to the hands of the state, I think it does challenge the Kremlin's weakness because we have seen how the long arm of the Kremlin has stretched, you know, as far as London in 2006 with Alexander Litvinenko and even closer to home, Boris Nemtsov, who was gunned down outside, you know, yards from the Kremlin in 2015. There are ways that if, if the benefits outweigh the risks for the Kremlin, I'm certain that there perhaps would be ways of making these people disappear. The fact that they are kept in jail, that they are tortured and that sort of thing. And essentially, as long as they are alive, their cause is also alive. That, I think, does speak to the fact that, for whatever reason, the Kremlin also doesn't feel that they can just do away with these people. You know, famously, Putin also has always refused to um, name Navalny by name. He's usually, he usually refers to him as, you know, that man, or uh, he will never use his name. And I think there is something that these dissenters stand for that scares the Kremlin, in my opinion.
0: Thank you, Owen and Lisa. Finally, Damien Thompson, associate editor at The Spectator and host of the Holy Smoke podcast, writes in this week's issue about the rise of America's Satanists. He joins me now alongside Chaplin Leopold, who co runs the Global Order of Satan UK. Damien, could you tell us a little bit about modern Satanism? for those who perhaps don't know much about it?
5: I think it's important to say that Satanism is as divided and as factional and as diverse in its beliefs as Christianity or any religious tradition. It's very sectarian, which is one of the things that surprised me. When I talk about Satanism, and indeed when Leo from The Global Order of Satan talks about Satanism, I think we have to accept that, as he says, they don't believe in Satan. And I'm not just going to brush that aside and say, but, he's a, you know, but, but he must be a real agent of the devil because he uses the word. They don't believe in Satanism. They're ultra-secularist campaigners who, I think, are using the media, which is naturally very sympathetic to them because they hate the church, extremely effectively. And one of the places they're doing that is this weekend in Boston at the Marriott Hotel where there's something called Satancom, which it's actually sold out. There's gonna be over eight hundred Satanists and their fellow travellers attending what sound like extremely PC UAG pierced pronouned meetings, not my cup of tea, even if even if I was relaxed about the Satan Satanism label. But it's been getting gushing coverage from the Boston press and all the trendy Um, all the trendy websites, they just love it. Um, And they love its ironic use of satanic imagery. But one of the things that interests me is that it's being hosted by the Satanic Temple. And Leo is a member of the global order of Satan. And they, they don't get on, and this grips me. Nor do either of them get on with the Church of Satan, founded in the 1960s by Anton LaVey, which is the beginning of this sort of rational, atheistic, so called Satanism, which itself had a split because Love's daughter runs in another outfit, and now we're deep into people's liberation front of Judea territory.
0: Yeah, yes. So Leo, um what do you think of Damien's description there that Satanism, particularly in its modern form, is essentially ultra secularist and that rather than theistic in any way. Is that is that an accurate description?
6: I would say we are secularist. I I don't know how you define the difference between an ultra-secularist and a a standard secularist. Um, I didn't attend a boot camp on that one. But we are definitely secular. We don't believe in a higher power. We don't believe in gods. We don't believe in demons. We especially don't believe in magic, which is something that definitely differentiates us from the Church of Satan, for instance, as Damien
0: rightly pointed out.
6: So we're definitely, definitely secular, yes.
0: So what, if you don't mind me asking, is the point of it then? The point of it is that
6: we're a religion in our own right and our own understanding. We use Satan as a figure of inspiration. And I'm very much talking about Satan as you might find in literary figures. So we're talking about the Satan as the rebel. We're talking about Satan in Milton's Paradise Lost, Satan in the ideas of the Romantics and Satan is the idea of the one who stands up to injustice knowing the consequences that will befall them.
5: But I know it's sorry but forgive my interrupting, I know it's difficult to define religion, but I'm really struggling to see how either the global order of Satan or the Satanic Temple, which is the only body officially recognized as a religion in the in the United States, can actually be described as religious. I mean, there are many definitions of religion, but you can stretch and stretch and stretch them, and they don't really seem to take in non-theistic bodies. So and no how, do, how does our or,
6: particular brand of faith and our brand of religion sort of fit in with more established religions? Is that sort well, of the question the here? Is,
5: no, I'm talking about religion as a concept, as a sociological concept. Right, sure thing, OK. Now, how to define that has been... It'll never be... It'll ne- there'll never be any real agreement on a single definition. But you seem to be outside almost any definition of it in that no supernatural... OK, there are definitions which exclude the, the, the supernatural, but no, no real transcendent philosophical beliefs that can be distinguished from those we would consider as non-religious secularists. Well, As far I, as I can work out. so the rest is just imagery... So
6: there is a very deep philosophical root, um, which I would argue is the foundation of religion. You know, when you start debating what is and isn't supernatural, at some point you're going to have to get down to different religions saying that each other's prayers don't work, therefore they're not supernatural at heart. And you could argue that that defies all religions as being inherently supernatural because all other religions would say that other religions' supernaturalism doesn't work. But at the centre of our religion, and I do use the word religion, so in answer to your sort of question about what you know, how is there any sort of sense of a tangible established religion, for a start we aim to break away from established religions. We don't want to be another standard religion. We've seen the damage that standard religion has done in the past and we want nothing to do with it. We very much want to use the idea of religion as if force for good, and the way we see about doing that is that religion doesn't have to involve an outside authority. A religion can involve well, you I mean, yourself as your highest authority.
5: I, I just don't buy this idea. I mean, you know, religions don't have to be established to be religions. Definitions of a religion can accommodate all sorts of things, but okay, look, we could argue about this for ages. Um, but what does strike me is that you guys calling yourselves Satanists A, seem to be very effective campaigners for various liberal causes, especially abortion. And the other thing that strikes me is that you don't all get on with each other and that the hostility between the global order of Satan, of which you're ordained, Minister. I'm not okay. ordained okay. in the slightest. Okay. We, do, we don't do. We don't have ordination okay. right. or anything okay. like that. Right. Baby, we're we're non-hierarchical blah. in nature. Or,
6: or, or, my my title is bestowed upon well, me by agreement order, from okay. everyone I but, work
5: with. Okay, whatever, whatever. But anyway, the thing—the group you belong to, the Global Order of Satan, can't stand the Satanic Temple. Why is that?
6: We, many of us, were members of the Satanic Temple in the past. We, at face value, found their values to be appealing to us. We agreed with their stated mission. However, after working with them for a number of years, we found that on a much deeper level, there were things about the leadership especially, especially the higher leadership, that we found as tasteful and displeasurable. And I'm not at ability to discuss those at great length due to the litigious nature of the Satanic Temple. So... That's really all I can say on the matter publicly is that we found that there were inherent differences between their stated objectives and what they were actually doing behind the scenes. And so we
0: decided to leave. Leo, there's um, there's a point which Damien made there about the issue of abortion, which seems to be taken up by various uh, satanic churches after the Roe v. Wade overturning. And obviously it's a bit it's different here in the UK. But I wondered what, what you make of um, uh, this point made by the Church of Satan, which Damien Satanist piece who say that, oddly, the the last thing that pro-choice campaigners might want is uh, an endorsement from from Satanists. I wonder, do do you agree with that? Do you think that it might actually be off-putting, perhaps?
6: The only people who have ever in any way negatively associated what we do with pro-choice campaigning is people who are anti-choice. Pro-choice campaigners have never contacted us, they've never reached out, they've never said, please stop doing this or anything like that. It's only in the minds of anti-choice campaigners that they imagine this connection exists.
5: Uh, I Yeah, maybe in your case. That's kind of anecdotal evidence, though. Well, I, I'm sorry, I, I don't have very um, embarrassing to for some. Uh, no, but I think, you know, the fact that the Church of Satan has pointed out, that at least the Church of Satan has said it's very embarrassing for a lot of pro-choice people in the United States to be associated with Satanism, which is associated in the public mind with child sacrifice. And let me quickly point out that I was... I, I think I was one of the first journalists to point out that the satanic ritual abuse stories were based on fantasy. But nonetheless, Satanism is associated in mythology with child sacrifice. And I can just think of pro-abortion campaigners going, oh, great, we've got people calling them so, so Satanists on board. That's really going to play well. But actually, the irony is... The the liberal media is so in tune with your basic agenda, Leo, that it doesn't matter. And the more pro the more pro- abortion you are, the more the more you know, the more sanctified as as it where you are by by the media. So,
6: that's an interesting choice of words to you use, sanctified. Um,
5: modern rationalizationism. It was ironic. Yeah, like your
0: satanism, but... uh, Well, the, the, um, Sorry, Leo, if I may ask, at the end of his piece, um, Damon says that, that there's a sort of popularity among uh, younger people, sort of Gen Z, for example, for this popularity among younger generations for Satanism. Is that something that you've encountered, uh, that there's a kind of popularity among young people?
6: I would actually say that there's been this... We did an interview of The Telegraph a few months ago, and they they sort of titled their article as, like, The Youth Turn to Satanism. In our our experience, that's greatly not true. We have a very broad church, again, ironic um, choice of wording there, of members of all ages, and our membership is not heavily weighted towards the youth. We have a great number of youth members, but it's not just a young people's religion. More and more people are actually saying, oh, hey, there's alternatives, I don't have to follow the paths that have been laid down in the in the past i can actually choose my religion and choose which way to turn can i just make one can i can i just make
5: one point about abortion because i can imagine that catholic listeners will be saying oh my god you haven't picked a fight with the guy from the global order of satan over this And I am opposed to abortion. I'm absolutely revolted by late-term infanticidal abortions of the type that are illegal in this country but legal in America, despite Roe v. Wade in many states. But my view is that a so-called Catholic president, Joe Biden, by doing everything he can to facilitate such abortions, is, as Catholics would see it, doing the work of the devil far more effectively than any Group of soi or Satanists.
6: Okay, maybe I could point out that perhaps that in fact the whole, you know, if you even have a Catholic pre- president, as you put it, is campaigning for abortion, maybe we could view it as healthcare issue, not as a religious rights issue which is how we think it should be viewed the only reason we get so vehemently involved with abortion rights is because it is made into a religious issue when it should simply be an issue of healthcare and religious opinions shouldn't be involved in it at all, from a fundamental point there's nobody standing outside their local dentist campaigning against the use of dentistry or anything like that this is a healthcare issue that religious people yeah. have picked up on to try and impose their views on other people's choices about their health care.
5: We're not going to agree about this, but I do think that the Satanic Temple, if I may mention them in the presence of a member of the global order of Satan, is actually rather more effective at... And basically, I think, it's done, if you like. It's dropped the literal belief in Satanism, not that you ever held it. But some people did it's dropped literal it, it's the rituals are now ironic, focusing entirely on almost you know into almost entirely on secular liberal issues that are deeply approved of by the liberal media effectively you're doing what many of the churches have done only more effectively i think because you're fashionable and you know episcopalians are not
0: yeah, so that that ironic point is interesting to me to me leo i suppose uh, my final question then if I may, and it's something which I- I just can't wrap my own head around, but if a lot of a lot of all of this is sort of ironic, and the kind of a lot of the ritual stuff is is ironic uh, what sort of is the the point of it
6: for a start, I would say Damien has lots of opinions about our rituals. has he ever attended one? Probably not because our rituals are actually quite personal affairs most of the time, and the things that you might see in the news and the media are just the big extravagant stuff that's headline grabbing you fail to witness an entire more personal, more introspective side of Satanism. So please don't discount the religion just because you've only read what you've seen in the headlines. So our rituals can take a number of different forms. In fact, there's just been a Swedish PhD student who's done a whole of their thesis on the nature of modern Satanic ritual. A lot of us from the Global Order of Satan gave interviews. You're welcome to Google that and find it should you so wish. And a lot of our ritual work is focused deeply on personal growth introspection and community bonding so as i've stated many times i cannot speak for tst i want nothing to do with tst so in asking questions about what they're doing you know what i'm probably not a fan of some of their big things either because what we like to do is far more focused and far more in keeping with our inherent differences between our two sects of
0: satanism thank you damien and leo and that's it for this week As ever, if you've enjoyed the podcast, pick up a copy of The Spectator to read all the stories in full. I'm William Moore, and I hope you'll join me again next week.